Good evening. I hope you've had a wonderful day today. Welcome to BVJ's Bedtime Stories. My name is Big Voice Jay, and this is a show where we get you ready for a great night's sleep with some old familiar stories that you haven't heard in a while. Links to every story can be found in the show notes at our website, bedtimewithbvj.com. Tonight, we continue our story, The Brother and Sister, by Mary Shelley. Flora, for an instant, could only think of her brother. She rushed past the old woman, down into the great hall, in which, lying on a rude litter of boughs, she beheld the inanimate body of Count Fabian. He was surrounded by servitors and peasants, who were all clasping their hands and tearing their hair as with frightful shrieks they pressed round their lord, not one of them endeavoring to restore him to life. Flora's first impulse was to retire, but casting a second glance on the livid brow of the young count, she saw his eyelids move and the blood falling in quick drops from his hair on the pavement. She exclaimed, "'He is not dead! He bleeds!' Hasten some of you for a leech. And meanwhile she hurried to get some water, sprinkled it on his face, and, dispersing the group that hung over him and impeded the free air, the soft breeze playing on his forehead revived him, and he gave manifest tokens of life, so that when the physician arrived he found that, though he was seriously and even dangerously hurt, every hope might be entertained of his recovery." Flora undertook the office of his nurse and fulfilled its duties with unwearied attention. She watched him by night and waited on him by day with that spirit of Christian humility and benevolence which animates a sister of charity as she tends the sick. For several days Fabian's soul seemed on the wing to quit its earthly abode, and the state of weakness that followed his insensibility was scarcely less alarming. At length he recognized and acknowledged the care of Flora, but she alone possessed any power to calm and guide him during the state of irritability and fever that then ensued. Nothing except her presence controlled his impatience. Before her, he was so lamb-like that she could scarcely have credited the accounts that other gave her of his violence, but that whenever she returned after leaving him for any time, she heard his voice far off in anger and found him with flushed cheeks and flashing eyes all which demonstrations subsided into meek acquiescence when she drew near. In a few weeks he was able to quit his room, but any noise or sudden sound drove him almost insane. So loud is an Italian's quietest movements that Flora was obliged to prevent the approach of any except herself, and her soft voice and noiseless footfall were the sweetest medicine she could administer to her patient. It was painful to her to be in perpetual attendance on Lorenzo's rival and foe, but she subdued her heart to her duty, and custom helped to reconcile her. As he grew better, she could not help remarking the intelligence of his countenance and the kindness and cordiality of his manners. There was an unobtrusive and delicate attention and care in his intercourse with her that won her to be pleased. When he conversed, his discourse was full of entertainment and variety, his memory was well stored with numerous fabuleaux, novelles, and romances, 
which he quickly discovered to be highly interesting to her, and so contrived to have one always ready from the exhaustless stock he possessed. These romantic stories reminded her of the imaginary adventures she had invented in solitude and silence for her brother, and each tale of foreign countries had a peculiar charm, which animated her face as she listened, so that Fabian could have gone on forever, only to mark the varying expression of her countenance as he proceeded. Yet she acknowledged these attractions in him, as a Catholic nun may, the species virtues of a heretic, and... While he contrived each day to increase the pleasure she derived from his society, she satisfied her conscience with regard to her brother by cherishing in secret a little quiet stock of family hate, and by throwing over her manners whenever she could recollect so to do, a cold and ceremonious tone which she had the pleasure of seeing vexed him heartily. Nearly two months had passed, and he was so well recovered and Flora began to wonder that he did not return to Siena, and of course to fulfill her duty by wishing that he should. And yet, while his cheek was sunk through past sickness and his elastic step grown slow, she, as a nurse desirous of completing her good work, felt averse to his entering too soon on the scene of the busy town and its noisy pleasures. At length, two or three of his friends having come to see him, he agreed to return with them to the city. A significant glance which they cast on his young nurse probably determined him. He parted from her with a grave curtsy and a profusion of thanks, unlike his usual manner, and rode off without alluding to any probability of their meeting again. She fancied that she was relieved from a burden when he went, and was surprised to find the days grow tedious and mortified to perceive that her thoughts no longer spent themselves so spontaneously on her brother, and to feel that the occupation of a few weeks could unhinge her mind and dissipate her cherished reveries. Thus, while she felt the absence of Fabian, she was annoyed at him the more for having, in addition to his other misdeeds, invaded the sanctuary of her dearest thoughts. She was beginning to conquer this listlessness and to return with renewed zest to her usual occupations. When, in about a week after his departure, Fabian suddenly returned. He came upon her as she was gathering flowers for the shrine of the Madonna, and on seeing him, she blushed as rosy red as the roses she held. He looked infinitely worse than when he went. His wan cheeks and sunk eyes excited her concern, and her earnest and kind questions somewhat revived him. He kissed her hand and continued to stand beside her as she finished her nosegay. Had anyone seen the glad, fond look with which he regarded her? As she busied herself among the flowers, even old Sandra might have prognosticated his entire recovery under her care. Flora was totally unaware of the feelings that were excited in Fabian's heart, and the struggle he made to overcome a passion too sweet and too seductive when awakened by so lovely a being ever to be subdued. He had been struck with her some time ago, and avoided It was through his suggestion that she passed a period of the Countess's pilgrimage in this secluded villa. Nor had he thought of visiting her there, but riding over one day to inquire concerning a foal rearing for him, his horse had thrown him and caused him that injury which had made him so long the inmate of the same abode. Already prepared to admire her, her kindness, her gentleness, 
and her unwearied patience during his illness, easily conquered a heart most ready and yet most unwilling to yield. He had returned to Sienna resolved to forget her, but he came back assured that his life and death were in her hands. At first, Count Fabian had forgot that he had any but his own feelings and prejudices, and those of his mother and kindred to overcome. But when the tyranny of love vanquished these, he began to fear a more insurmountable impediment in Flora. The first whisper of love fell like mortal sin upon her ear, and disturbed and even angry, she replied, Methinks you wholly forget who I am and what you are. I speak not of ancient feuds, though these were enough to divide us for ever. Know that I hate you as my brother's oppressor. Restore Lorenzo to me. Recall him from banishment. Erase the memory of all that he has suffered through you. Win his love and approbation. And when all this is fulfilled, which never can be, speak a language which now it is as the bitterness of death for me to hear. And saying this, she hastily retired, to conceal the floods of tears which this, as she termed it, insult it caused to flow, to lament yet more deeply her brother's absence and her own dependence. Fabian was not so easily silenced, and Flora had no wish to renew scenes and expressions of violence so foreign to her nature. She imposed a rule on herself, by never swerving from which she hoped to destroy the ill-omened love of her protector. She secluded herself as much as possible, and when with him assumed a chilling indifference of manner, and made apparent in her silence so absolute and cold a rejection of all his persuasions that had not love, with its unvanquishable hopes, reigned absolutely in young Fabian's heart, he must have despaired. He ceased to speak of his affection so to win back her ancient kindness. This was at first difficult, for she was timid as a young for she was timid as a young bird whose feet touched the lime twigs. But naturally credulous and quite inexperienced, she soon began to believe that her alarm was exaggerated, and to resume those habits of intimacy which had heretofore subsisted between them. By degrees Fabian contrived to insinuate the existence of his attachment. He could not help it. He asked no return. He would wait for Lorenzo's arrival, which he was sure could not be far distant. Her displeasure could not change, nor silence destroy, a sentiment which survived in spite of both. Entrenched in her coldness and her indifference, she hoped to weary him out by her defensive warfare, and fancied that he would soon cease his pursuit in disgust. The countess had been long away. She had proceeded to view the Feast of San Gennaro at Naples, and had not received tidings of her son's illness. Her return was now expected, and Fabian resolved to return to Siena in time to receive her. Both he and Flora were therefore surprised one day, when she suddenly entered the apartment where they both were. Flora had long peremptorily insisted that he should not intrude while she was employed on her embroidery frame. But this day he had made so good a pretext that for the first time he was admitted, and then suffered to stay for a few minutes. They now, neither of them knew how long. Busy at her work and he sitting near, gazing unreproved on her unconscious face and graceful figure, felt himself happier than he had ever been before. The countess was sufficiently surprised 
and not a little angry. But before she could do more than utter one exclamation, Fabian interrupted by entreating her not to spoil all. He drew her away, he made his own explanations, and urged his wishes with resistless persuasion. The countess had been used to indulge him in every wish. It was impossible for her to deny any strongly urged request. His pertinacity, his agitation, his entreaties half won her, and the account of his illness and his assurances, seconded by those of all the family, that Flora had saved his life, completed the conquest and she became in her turn a suitor for her son to the orphan daughter of Mancini. Flora, educated till the age of twelve by one who never consulted his own pleasures and gratifications, but went right on in the path of duty, regardless of pain or disappointment, had no idea of doing aught merely because she or others might wish it. Since that time she had been thrown on her own resources and Jealously cherishing her individuality, every feeling of her heart had been strengthened by solitude and by a sense of mental independence. She was the least likely of anyone to go with the stream or, or to yield to the mere influence of circumstances. She felt, she knew, what it became for her to do, and that must be done in spite of every argument. The countess's expostulations and entreaties were of no avail. The promise she had made to her brother of engaging herself by no vow for five years must be observed under every event. It was asked from her at the sad and solemn hour of their parting, and was thus rendered doubly sacred. So constituted, indeed, were her feelings, that the slightest wish she ever remembered having been expressed by Lorenzo had more weight with her than the most urgent prayers of another. It was a part of her religion. Reverence and love for him had been molded into the substance of her soul from infancy. Their very separation had tended to render these impressions ineradicable. Brooded over them for years, and when no sympathy or generous kindness was afforded her, when the countess treated her like an inferior and a dependent, and Fabian had forgotten her existence, she had lived from month to month and from year to year, cherishing the image of her brother, and only able to tolerate the annoyances that beset her existence, by considering that her patience, her fortitude, and her obedience were all offerings at the shrine of her beloved Lorenzo's desires. It is true that the generous and kindly disposition of Fabian won her to regard him with a feeling nearly approaching tenderness. Though this emotion was feeble, the mere ripple of the waves compared to the mighty tide of affection that set her will all one way, and made her deem everything trivial except Lorenzo's return, Lorenzo's existence, obedience to Lorenzo. She listened to her lover's persuasions so unyieldingly that the countess was provoked by her inflexibility. But she bore her reproaches with such mildness and smiled so sweetly that Fabian was the more charmed. She admitted that she owed him a certain submission as the guardian set over her by her brother. Fabian would have gladly exchanged this authority for the pleasure of being commanded by her. But this was an honor he could not attain. So in playful spite he enforced concessions from her. At his desire she appeared in society, dressed as became her rank, and filled in his house the station a sister of his own would have held. She preferred seclusion, but... She was averse to contention, and it was little that she yielded, while the purpose of her soul was as fixed 
The fifth year of Lorenzo's exile was now drawing to a close, but he did not return, nor had any intelligence been received of him. The decree of his banishment had been repeated, the fortunes of his house restored, and his palace, under Fabian's generous care, rebuilt. These were acts that demanded and excited Flora's gratitude, yet they were performed in an unpretending manner, as if the citizens of Siena had suddenly become just and wise without his interference. But these things dwindled into trifles while the continuation of Lorenzo's absence seemed the pledge of her eternal misery, and the tacit appeal made to her kindness, while she had no thought but for her brother, drove her to desperation. She could no longer tolerate the painful anomaly of her situation. She could not endure her suspense for her brother's fate, nor the reproachful glances of Fabian's mother and his friends. He himself was more generous. He read her heart, and as the termination of the fifth year drew nigh, ceased to allude to his own feelings and appeared as rapt as herself in doubt concerning the fate of the noble youth, whom they could scarcely entertain a hope of ever seeing more. This was small comfort to Flora. She had resolved that when the completion of the fifth year assured her that her brother was forever lost, she would never see Fabian again. At first, she had resolved to take refuge in a convent and in the sanctity of religious vows, but she remembered how averse Lorenzo had always shown himself to this vocation and that he had preferred to place her beneath the roof of his foe than within the walls of a nunnery. Besides, young as she was and, despite of herself, full of hope, she recoiled from shutting the gates of life upon herself forever. Notwithstanding her fears and sorrow, she clung to the belief that Lorenzo lived, and this led her to another plan. When she received her little cross from Milan, it was accompanied by a message that he believed he had found a good friend in the archbishop of that place. This prelate, therefore, would know whither Lorenzo had first bent his steps, and to him she resolved to apply. Her scheme was easily formed. She possessed herself in the garb of the pilgrim, and resolved on the day, following the completion of the fifth year, to depart from Siena and bend her steps toward Lombard, buoyed up by the hope that she should gain some tidings of her brother. Meanwhile, Fabian had formed a similar resolve. He had learnt the facts from Flora of Lorenzo having first resorted to Milan, and he determined to visit that city and not to return without certain information. He acquainted his mother with his plan, but begged her not to inform Flora that she might not be tortured by double doubt during his absence. The anniversary of the fifth year was come, and with it the eve of these several and separate journeys. Flora had retired to spend the day at the villa before mentioned. She had chosen to retire thither for various reasons. Her escape was more practicable thence than in the town, and she was anxious to avoid seeing both Fabian and his mother, now that she was on the point of inflicting severe pain on them. She spent the day at the villa and in its gardens, musing on her plans, regretting the quiet of her past life, saddened on Fabian's account, grieving bitterly for Lorenzo. She was not alone, for she had been obliged to confide in one of her former companions and to obtain her assistance. Poor little Angeline was dreadfully frightened with the trust reposed in her, but did not dare expostulate with or betray her friend. 
and she continued near her during this last day, by turns trying to console and weeping with her. Towards evening, they wandered together into the wood contagious to the villa. Flora had taken her harp with her, but her trembling fingers refused to strike its chords. She left it, she left her companion, and strayed on alone to take leave of a spot consecrated by many a former visit. Here, the umbrageous trees gathered about her and shaded her with her thick and drooping foliage. A torrent dashed down from neighboring rock and fell from a height into a rustic basin, hollowed to receive it then, overflowing the margin at once. It continued falling over successive declivities till it reached the bottom of a little ravine, when it stole on in a placid and silent course. This had ever been a favorite resort of Flora. The twilight of the wood and the perpetual flow, the thunder, the hurry, and the turmoil of the waters, the varied sameness of the eternal elements accorded with the melancholy of her ideas and the endless succession of her reveries. She came to it now. She gazed on the limpid cascade. For the last time, a soft sadness glistened in her eyes and her attitude denoted the tender regret that filled her bosom, her long, bright tresses streaming in elegant disorder, her light veil and simple yet rich attire were fitfully mirrored in the smooth face of the rushing waters. At this moment, the sound of steps more firm and manly than those of Angeline struck her ear, and Fabian himself stood before her. He was unable to bring himself to depart on his journey without seeing her once again. He had written to the villa, and finding that she had quitted it, sought and found her in the lone recess where they had often spent hours together, which had been full of bliss to him. Flora was sorry to see him, for her secret was on her lips, and yet she resolved not to give it utterance. He was ruled by the same feeling. Their interview was therefore short, and neither alluded to what sat nearest the heart of each. They parted with a simple good night, as if certain of meeting the following morning, each deceived the other, and each was in turn deceived. There was more of tenderness in Flora's manner than there had ever been. It cheered his faltering soul, about to quit her, while the anticipation of the blow he was about to receive from her made her regard as venial this momentary softening towards her brother's enemy. Fabian passed a night at the villa, and early the next morning he departed for Milan. He was impatient to arrive at the end of his journey, and often he thrust his spurs into his horse's sides and put him up to his speed, which even then appeared slow. Yet he was aware that his arrival at Milan might advance him, not a jot toward the ultimate object of his journey, and he called Flora cruel and unkind, until the recollection of her kind farewell consoled and cheered He stopped the first night at Empoli and, crossing the Arno, began to ascend the Apennine on the northern side. Soon he penetrated their fastnesses and entered deep into the Ilex woods. He journeyed on perseveringly, and yet the obstructions he met with were many and borne with impatience. At length, on the afternoon of the third day, he arrived at a little rustic inn, hid deep in a wood, which showed signs of seldom being visited by travelers. The burning sun made it a welcome shelter for Fabian, and he deposited his steed in the stable, which he found already partly occupied by a handsome black horse, and then entered the inn to seek refreshment for himself. 
there seemed some difficulty in obtaining this. The landlady was the sole domestic, and it was long before she made her appearance. And then she was full of trouble and dismay. A sick traveler had arrived, a gentleman to all appearance dying of a malignant fever. His horse, his well-stored purse, and rich dress showed that he was a cavalier of consequence. The more the... There was no help, nor any means of carrying him forward, yet half his pain seemed to arise from his regret at being detained. He was so eager to proceed to The name of his own town excited the interest of Count Fabian, and he went up to visit the stranger while the hostess prepared his repast. Meanwhile, Flora awoke with the lark, and with the assistance of Angeline, attired herself in her pilgrim's garb. From the stir below, she was surprised to find that Count Fabian had passed the night at the villa, and she lingered till he should have departed, as she believed, on his return to Siena. Then she embraced her young friend, and taking leave of her with many blessings and thanks, alone with heaven as she trusted for her guide, she quitted Fabian's sheltering roof, and with a heart that maintained its purpose in spite of her feminine timidity, began her pilgrimage. Her journey performed on foot was slow, so that there was no likelihood that she could overtake her lover, already many miles in advance. Now that she had begun it, her undertaking appeared to her gigantic, and her heart almost failed her. The burning sun scorched her, never having before found herself alone in a highway. A thousand fears assailed her, and she grew so weary that soon she was unable to support herself. By the advice of a landlady at an inn, where she stopped, she purchased a mule to help her on a long journey. Yet with this help, it was the third night before she arrived at Empoli, and then crossing the Arno, as her lover had done before, her difficulties seemed to begin to unfold themselves and to grow gigantic as she entered the dark woods of the Apennine and found herself amidst the solitude of its vast forests. Her pilgrim's garb inspired some respect, and she rested at convents by the way. The pious sisters held up their hands in admiration of her courage, while her heart beat faintly with the knowledge that she possessed absolutely none. Yet again and again she repeated to herself that the Apennines once passed, the worst would be over. So she toiled on, now weary, now frightened, very slowly and yet very anxious to get on with speed. On the evening of the seventh day after quitting her home, she was still entangled in the mazes of these savage hills. She was to sleep at a convent on their summit that night and the next day arrive at Bologna. This hope had cheered her through the day, but evening approached. The way grew more intricate and no convent appeared. The sun had set, and she listened anxiously for the bell of the Ave Maria, which would give her hope that the goal she sought was nigh. But all was silent, save the swinging boughs of the vast trees and the timid beating of her own heart. Darkness closed around her, and despair came with the increased obscurity, till a twinkling light revealing itself among the trees afforded her some relief. She followed this beamy guide till it led her to a little inn, while the sight of a kind-looking woman and the assurance of safe shelter dispelled her terrors and filled her with grateful pleasure. Seeing her so weary, the considerate hostess hastened to place food before her, and then conducted her to a little low room where her bed was prepared. "'I am sorry, lady,' said the landlady in a whisper, "'not to be able to accommodate you better, "'but a sick cavalier occupies my best room. "'It is next to this, 
and he sleeps now, and I would not disturb him. Poor gentleman. I never thought he would rise more, and under heaven he owes his life to one who, whether related to him or not, cannot tell, for he did not accompany him. Four days ago he stopped here, and I told him my sorrow, how I had a dying guest, and he charitably saw him, and has since then nursed him, more like a twin brother than a stranger. The good woman prattled on. Flora heard but little of what she said, and overcome by weariness and sleep, paid no attention to her tale. But having performed her orisons and placed her head on the pillow, she was quickly lapped in the balmy slumber she so much needed. Early in the morning she was awoke by a murmur of voices in the next room. She started up and, recalling her scattered thoughts, tried to remember the account the hostess had given her the preceding evening. The sick man spoke, but his accent was low, and the words did not reach her. He was answered, could Flora believe her senses? Did she not know the voice that spoke these words? Fear nothing. A sweet sleep has done you infinite good, and I rejoice in the belief that you will speedily recover. I have sent to Siena for your sister, and do indeed expect that Flora will arrive this very day. More was said, but Flora heard no more. She had risen, and was hastily dressing herself. In a few minutes she was by her brother's, her Lorenzo's bedside, kissing his wan hand and assuring him that she was indeed Flora. These are indeed one, she at last said. And if you are mine own Flora, you perhaps can tell me who this noble gentleman is, who day and night has watched beside me, as a mother may by her only child, giving no time to repose, but exhausting himself for me. How, dearest brother, said Flora, can I truly answer your question? To mention the name of our benefactor were to speak of a mask and a disguise. He is my protector and guardian, who has watched over and preserved me while you wandered far. His is the most generous heart in Italy, offering past enmity and family pride as sacrifices at the altar of nobleness and truth. He is the restorer of fortunes in your native town, and the lover of my sweet sister. I have heard of these things and was on my way to confirm his happiness and to find my own, when sickness laid me thus low and would have destroyed us both forever, but for Fabian Ptolemy, who how exerts his expiring authority to put an end to the scene, interrupted the young count. Not till this day has Lorenzo been sufficiently composed to hear any of these explanations, and we risk his returning health by too long a conversation. The history of these things and of his long wanderings, now so happily ended, must be reserved for a future hour. When assembled in our beloved Siena, exiles and foes no longer, we shall long enjoy the happiness which Providence, after so many trials, has bounteously reserved for us. The moral of the story got to put the past behind you. Yes, family feuds can go on for years, decades even. Be famous, Lindy, and they be famous in the town that it's going through. But none of that matters. It comes to healing the sick and finding love. 
I want to remind you that we are always on lookout for great public domain stories like this one to feature on the show. If you know of any, please email bigvoicej at gmail.com. We've got a YouTube channel for your pleasure. We've got a YouTube channel for... We have... Several of our podcasts have been turned into video. <clears throat> Several of the podcasts have been turned into videos on our YouTube channel, tiny.cc slash bbjbedtime. Don't forget to leave us a review on iTunes. It helps to spread the word that we're putting people to sleep every single night. And if you'd like to support the show, there's a Buy Me A Coffee link on every page and post. Thank you so much for listening. Good night. Diamond Club hopes you have enjoyed this program. <laughs>